I think about it as a spectrum. And on one end, there's what I would call the true ability to pay, right? That is a customer's actual ability to pay the bill at the end of the month or that they're unable to pay for their housing, unable to pay for their food. These are really the most vulnerable customers, right? right? And on the other end of the spectrum, there's really, it's a willingness to pay. Welcome to the Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 079, number 79 of the Flux Capacitor. This episode was recorded in July 2023 on Zoom. My guest today is... I'm Mark Rubenstein. I'm a regulatory lawyer and one of the principals at a firm called Shepard Rubenstein. We do a lot of work providing advice to customer and non-utility stakeholders in energy matters. Mark joined me for a conversation about the intersection of rate setting, affordability, and the costs of GHG emissions reduction targets. We discuss the role of interveners in rate setting. We talk about affordability and the ability versus the willingness to pay for electricity service, the use of benchmarking, the future challenges due to the cost of investments in decarbonization, and the need for better and more inclusive planning. And Mark brings a book recommendation very much on topic for an addition to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my conversation with Mark Rubenstein. Mark, welcome. It's, it's great to, to finally get you on the podcast. I've been trying to look for a little while to get our schedules so long, so this is awesome. It's my pleasure. The first question I wanted to ask you is your firm is located right across the street from the Ontario Energy Board. That wasn't random, was it? Uh, no, that's not. Uh, we do a lot of work. In fact, we do it's probably best known for our work at the Ontario Energy Board. And so uh, being so close, especially back in the day when everything was in person, uh, was clearly an asset since we'd be across the street yeah. uh, almost every week. So, so maybe for the listener, um, why don't you explain a little bit about what it is that, that you do, kind of like who are the clients? Um, because the process is interesting. I've, I've, I've seen a little bit of it uh, from the inside, but people on the outside really, I, I don't think, have a sense of, of um, you know, what role, uh, for instance, you and, and others would play in terms of helping regulators come to what is they hope to be just and reasonable rates for customers. Yeah, so as a, our firm does a lot of work for consumer groups or consumers just generally uh, in energy regulatory matters. And one of the big parts of that is representing consumer groups in rate hearings or facilities hearings or any other hearings, regulators. And we do primarily work in Ontario before the Ontario Energy Board. So uh, myself and there are other firms and other consultants in, in the sector who do this type of work will represent anybody from uh, residential consumer groups, all the way um, to you know, small business consumer groups, those who represent large industrial uh, businesses. Um, you know, we special, our firm does a lot of work in the mush sector. So schools, hospitals, universities, okay. uh, and others rep may represent non-consumer uh, who have policy interests like environmental groups. And we intervene in applications by uh, regulated utilities 
Um, and essentially we provide, when we do consumer side work, is we provide essentially the counterweight uh, for the board. So when a utility comes before the before the Ontario Energy Board, this it's the same, almost the same process in many places and many provinces across the country. The utilities go before their regulator and seek a rate increase yep. or um, or seek approval of a of a new transmission line or a natural gas pipeline or something to that nature. Mm -hmm. Other groups intervene who have an interest. Um, in that application because they're customers and they'll have to bear the costs or they're landowners because uh, right. the facilities will be on on their land or indigenous groups who have interests and essentially will scrutinize that application and provide uh, input to the and provide their positions to the regulator who ultimately has to uh, make a decision in the rates context mm -hmm. that may scrutinizing the budgets and the plan spending that the utility has to do and essentially make recommendations and provide positions to the regulator who ultimately has to determine what the rates that customers have to pay. Right. So how do you go about that? How do you go about representing the views? You, know, you mentioned schools, hospitals, universities, and so on. Um, how do you sort of connect the two? Because that's a that's a, a fairly a broad community that needs to be represented and needs a voice. And how, how, do, how, does, that, how does that come together? Well, so we do a lot of work primarily for schools in many of these cases, and we represent, so we're probably best known as we, one of our clients is essentially an organization um, that represents all the public school boards in Ontario, but there are other groups who do this representing other client segments, industrial you know, organizations who represent all the large industrials, manufacturers, residential customers who have their residential um, consumer groups, such as the Consumers Council of Canada, you know, national organizations yep. that you may or that your listeners may be familiar with. And essentially, you have a sense from, you know, depending on what that customer group is, uh, you may have, a, they may have a very, very specific uh, view about a utility in their application, or they may have sort of a generalized view about their interests. And you provide that advice, and you scrutinize their application to, you know, depending on what are the interests mm -hmm. they are, to seek rates that are essentially just and reasonable. And that's a very high level term. But really what you're looking at is rates that reflect, you know, an efficiently run utility who is investing um, to, investing in the amount that is, well, what we use the term prudent, but a reasonable amount to, to yeah. ensure that, you know, you're getting, a, you're balancing reliability and costs. Mm -hmm. And then how, or what kind of tools do you, do you have to be able to, to, um, make make assessments uh with respect to things like the you know the efficiency and and uh, and uh, the, the how reasonable the, the the plans being put forward so you know are, you're are you leaning on leaning on uh consultants do do you do you do work internally um and how does, how does that all come together well utilities when they come to seek uh you know when they bring in a rate application that could be depending on the jurisdiction every year in ontario it's generally every five or five or six years that they come with a major, major application, they're filing, you know, thousands of pages uh, with their application, essentially putting, you know, when it comes to their capital budget, their asset management plans, mm -hmm. and all the specifics, you know, and anywhere from the strategic level documents of a business plan for utility, up to sort of the nitty gritty accounting treatment of various yep. things that go into the rates. And, you know, what you're, what the tools you have is, firstly, experience, you've seen lots of applications, you have a sense of what to look for. Second, you know, in Ontario, as well as other jurisdictions, you know, you have a lot of other utilities to compare uh, them against, right? There's benchmarking is a key mm -hmm. component here, especially right. in Ontario, where, for example, in the distribution space, we still have about, you know, over 50 utilities. So there's some 
um, uh, you know, you're able to do some benchmarking. The the regulator itself may undertake its own benchmarking activities. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes you rely on consultants who have ex have ex have experience in a specific area, depending on the application or an expert. We do a lot of the work in house, just because you know we have that <laughs> we have so much experience doing that. And you're you know, I'm playing lawyer. <laughs> often but you also need to have an understanding of engineering economics accounting um and you know you build that experience over time and uh you know you learn every i think one of the great things about this job in this sector is you're learning something every day every application yeah, yeah. how did you uh how did you kind of land in this uh, spot I, I mean i was i asked people to come on the podcast um you know you, you mentioned you listened to the podcast so you know the question uh what was your journey when you were when you were a kid on the playground mark uh, what well, did you dream of being an advocate in front of the regulatory board for customers? You know, I used to look at the I look at the light bulb and wonder how exactly uh, uh -huh. how exactly like it. No, I think like most people, you just fell into this. Yeah. You know, after law school, I started doing this sort of work, and I just really just fell in love with it because, you know, there's a big public interest nature of the work right. that I do, but I think generally in the sector, I mean, there's a public interest nature of the work because of you know the monopoly. And the essential service that it provides, yep. you know, there's a such an overlay of public policy that I enjoy. And the idea is, I like numbers and I like puzzles. And many times, looking at an application, you know, you're really it's um, you're building it's a it's a puzzle that you're trying to you're mm -hmm. trying to put together and figure out. Yeah. So public policy and numbers. Before you did your law degree, did you study engineering or political science? I did political science, but okay. I did a, I did a number of I did a lot of economics. So I the numbers uh, I I'm able to, I'm yeah. able to deal with with somewhat <laughs> of these. You have an affinity for that for that side of it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Interesting stuff. So um, speaking of numbers, let's talk about the big issue that um, you know uh, takes up a lot of time uh, and increasingly is a concern as we look to the future, and that's about affordability. The interesting thing that I've noticed over the years is that depending upon who you talk to in the sector, everybody has a different idea of what affordability means. Um, and then given that, that you uh, have spent, um, you know, a, a lot of your career representing uh, customers, different types of customers, what's your take uh, in terms of a definition of uh, affordability? How would you define affordability? I think about it as a spectrum. And on one end, there's what I would call the true ability to pay. Yeah. Right. That is a customer's actual ability to pay the bill um, at the end of the month, or that they're unable to pay for their housing, unable to pay for their food. These are really the most vulnerable customers. Right. Right. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's really it's a willingness to pay. And you know, in some sense, willingness to pay may feel like, well, I'd rather not pay this much. Okay. But I think when you go deeper, there's a willingness to pay because individuals are then, or, or businesses are sacrificing something else that they wouldn't be able to do. They're able, they're not able to increase the size of their facility like they want. They may have to relocate to another jurisdiction. Yeah. Um, if it's, uh, if you think about it in the, in the, you know, for a hospital, for example, it's one less nurse or two less nurses or a school right. less teachers, all those sorts of things. And that's the real discussion about when when you're talking about about affordability. And it plays. There's a whole spectrum between those those two points where different people will sit. Uh, depends on your income level. Depends on if you're you're a trade exposed business. If you're um, you know depending other pressures that you may have. Mm -hmm. And it also fits into an overall bucket where there's lots of cost pressures from lots of different areas. Right. Electricity is one component. It's a big. It may be a big component. 
depending right. on uh, what type of customer you are. But there's also other cost components, right? And this all plays into a sort of a larger conversation that that they have. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, you know, I've often seen uh, the definition of uh, like energy poverty specifically uh, of being uh, households that spend more than 6% of their uh, after-tax household income on home energy. So based upon that metric, um, is that is that a is there a significant uh, number of, of people um, here in Canada or specifically in Ontario where you spend most of your time that that fall into that uh, category? I mean, there's, I mean, I they're generally well. Look, there is a there is a there is a component of uh, customers who do fit into that, right? Uh, and in some cases, those are the easiest ones to solve for. Okay. And I think, uh, in fact, there's a, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about protecting the most vulnerable, which is in, obviously a must. Right. But in many ways, that's the easiest group to uh, to deal huh. with because we have we have considered we consistently we have we're able to develop programs that are means tested to deal with these. A lot of uh, you know, I think of Ontario has uh, already a programs in place about affordability and to subsidize bills uh, on that on that small segment of the customers. Mm-hmm. And you know, you want to obviously keep it as small as possible that would fit into that definition. Mm-hmm. It's actually the broader issue, which is becomes a little bit more complicated, right? Where it's not the, those who are the most vulnerable, but that, but still maybe vulnerable in right. sort of a broader sense, um, where you, you know the biggest concerns about um, customers, especially as we move to it, the energy transition, where we, we know, regardless of where you sit, that there will be significant amount of investments that will, will need to be made. Those are the groups that actually um, give me greatest concern about our right. ability to meet our objectives. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I like the way you've, you've couched that. And that's been a concern of mine as well. Um, you know, when, when, when looking at the, the most vulnerable, the issue there isn't energy poverty, the, the issue there is poverty, quite simply. But yeah, it's that it's the those in the in the middle that it's more challenging in terms of defining uh, and then, and then figuring out what the future is going to look like as well. And I, I'd like to, I'd like to actually circle back and, and talk a little bit about uh, the future as well. Um, but before that, um, what are the kinds of things that that actually can be uh, can be done um, in the in the regulatory environment, given the the current regulatory framework that we operate uh, under? Uh, for for those that are not the most vulnerable, uh, but nonetheless those that are that are sort of between that uh, ability to pay and willingness to pay, and, and and are kind of on the on the bubble. Well, I mean, it depends what conversation you know. You have a conversation about today and the costs that customers are facing today, or the larger costs that are coming down the line that we need to we need to really put our focus on. Today. Uh, you know, a couple of things when you think about the things about today that are actually cross-cutting is you need to think about sort of just the pacing of work, right? I think we need to definitely be thinking about how, if there's significant expenditures today or into the future, how are we pacing that work in a more balanced way with customers? Okay. You know, also giving customers visibility, not just into their bills for the next year, but into in, into the future is an important part. If you think about businesses, you know, they're not just um, interested in this would apply more broadly, not just into the absolute bill, but understanding predictability of their costs is obviously an important part for customers. And then broadly, we just need to think about uh, cost control, right? You know, utilities generally need to think about how are we becoming more efficient? If we're seeking more money from customers and we're seeking mm-hmm. to increase rates, are we doing as much as we can to reduce our costs before we're asking for more? 
and you know focus on things like uh, you know efficiency programs, finding ways to become utility, to become more productive, are an incredibly important uh, part of the solution. Yeah, you, you'd mentioned um, earlier uh, benchmarking is is uh, is potentially one of the tools that you can use to assess uh, performance. Um, how is that? Or is that going to be a useful tool as we start projecting out into what the future requirements are going to be? Is it still a useful mechanism? Yes, but it becomes more challenging. Okay. Right? I think if we're moving into a world where the future looks very different than the past, then obviously data from the past becomes less relevant mm -hmm. to determining the future. Um, but I don't think we should throw that out and say, well, you know, there's no room for benchmarking. I do think it's important to, be, to compare costs. I mean, let's recall most times when we're talking about utilities, we're talking about distribution and transmission utilities who are mostly involved in this sort of regulatory type process, especially in non-vertically integrated uh, provinces. Right. Um, you know, at the end of the day, there are going to be all they're going to be there all there'll be similar challenges in comparing how you know other utilities are dealing with something. Benchmarking mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily have to be in the sort of the granular sense, of, right. uh, you know, the, but also it's sort of a best practices understanding of what everybody else is doing and ensuring that, you know, we're trying to spread that knowledge and figure out. I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's a diagnostic tool. Mm -hmm. that you can understand why is some utility doing something better than another utility? Why are their costs to build something lower than your cost? And it's an understanding. Look, I'd say the best utilities are using this. They use this internally yeah. as really any organization would do to drive performance. But when looking at it from the outside, that's that's been one of my concerns uh, over the years about looking at looking at using benchmarking to assess, for example, uh, reliability. If you're talking about you know 50, 50 distribution companies in Ontario, um, the the ones who will be at the bottom in terms of reliability will absolutely be the ones that are principally um, rural uh, and and have you know a greater uh, greater geographic area that they cover as opposed to urban companies. So that you know the differences between the companies sometimes make it challenging. But when you're Comparing 50 companies, there's always going to be those that are going to be in the top five, and there will always be those that will be in the bottom five. But sometimes it's as a result of circumstances that may not really reflect. Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, sometimes and sometimes not. And how do you figure out the difference between, you know, when it's significant and when it isn't? Well, I mean, first you ask the question, it's a diagnostic tool, right? So if okay. you take a look at two utilities that have different reliability or different costs, different costs, and you say, okay, well, what is it that you're doing differently? Yeah. You can sort of shed light. And sometimes the answer is, you're right. Uh, they're, they're serving a very different type of a customer mix. Okay. There's, you know, uh, one is, you know, urban center versus a, you know, has predominantly rural that affects both costs and reliability. One is, geographically north versus one that is you know uh you know in, in the south and you're able to make those determinations and understand it but sometimes it's just one is a better operator one is a poorer <laughs> operator right. than the other and this helps you understand okay we we had uh, the benefit of uh, of you participating in one of the events that that we put on earlier in the spring um and uh, I, I think this was actually from one of those one of the, the panel discussions that we had 
um, where you we were talking about the you know the policies established by regulators, um, and I, I think you said something to the to the effect of, uh, but we need to uh, include understanding the unwritten rules and expectations, and the direction that energy regulation is moving at at any point in time. I was interested in kind of getting getting from you what you know what are those kind of unwritten rules and expectations. Um, as opposed to, I guess, the 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 enabling legislation of the of the regulator that that doesn't change, but but those those I guess unwritten rules and expectations of the things that are evolving and changing, right? Yeah. Look, I mean, look. If you take a look across the, if you take a look across the country, a lot of regulators look very much the same. You take a look at their yeah. governing statute; they have very similar wording: just and reasonable, yeah. prudent. All these sorts of they have rules of practice that look very similar, right. you know, of how you're supposed to do it, you know, how an application, how they're adjudicated. But the truth is, they, there are things that are that go beyond that. Understanding, you know, the culture of of an individual regulator may be very different. Their actual sort of policies that may not be in statute are going to be very different. Okay, and you know, their their tolerance for different types of risks may be different. And they're you know hmm. understanding that. And I think you, I think one of the benefits over the years is I think regulators have increasingly talking to each other so right. they can understand amongst themselves about the difference. And there's also just, you know, across the country, there are just different cultures because of, you know, small pro a small province that deals with a very few utilities may just have a different culture okay. of how they actually adjudicate cases in large, like a larger province where they, there's just so many more, um, there's just so many more different utilities. Yeah. Okay. And it's not but to say one is good or bad, right? It's just that they are the very nature of things are not a, are are not always the same across another country. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's circle back to that affordability question because I think it's I mean it's it's going to be increasingly important as we move forward. Um, what are, what are the kinds of ways that um, that that we can look at reducing um, energy poverty and make electricity more affordable? Um, and maybe maybe ask it two different ways first. Like first, if 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 you Mark could yield unlimited power and could change regulatory and economic structures like that, what could we do to address affordability and energy poverty? And Money, I don't worry, I'll, I'll come back to the to, I'll come back to the question about okay, but in the real world, but yeah, I mean, if we could, if we weren't encumbered by the regulatory frameworks and the and the current structures, what what would be the the sorts of things that you would want to? This is the key question. The number one threat to meeting our GHG or net zero goals is cost. Yeah. So understanding what is the best way to deal with that is, is the most important thing that this sector can do uh, to get to where I think we all want to get to. Look, I think there are a number of things. And you know what? The truth is, I think they all can be done. Okay. I don't think they're necessarily wishful thinking. Oh. So the first thing is we need to understand the problem. And we actually don't right now. We need to understand, and this may be at a Canada, at a federal level, or each of the provinces needs to take a hard look and have a, an understanding of what actually are the cost consequences and the rate cost rate consequences, because those are not necessarily the same things. I think we've seen some jurisdictions do partial or very high level analyses. Uh, the Canadian Climate Institute did a yep. Yep. released a paper that looked at this at a very high level. In Ontario, we recently had the IESO's Pathways study, which sort of tries to map out what these what these costs are. But even the Pathways study, which is probably one of the more granular studies we've seen, 
has this asterisk that says we have not looked at distribution costs. And we know that's going to be a significant part of the puzzle. Yeah. Understanding what those costs are, even recognizing that it is going to be very hard to forecast costs and demand into the future. But understanding what the possible scenarios are will mm -hmm. first under give us to a baseline to figure out, okay, well, what is the problem we have to deal with? What are the various different iterations of what rates could look like over the mm -hmm. next 20 years as we get to 2050? And then we can just we can just have a actually a, a more proper conversation about what's the way to do this. The second thing I, I would say this is we need a better and a true integrated planning or growth, uh, uh, approach across energy sources. Okay. Right? Because where it used to be historically, but natural gas, depending on where you live, natural gas would be your heating, your heating fuel, electricity for everything else. Now we're needing to shift people into different, you know, from one uh, fuel source to another right. and understanding the timing of those sorts of things and understanding the the impact. And for, for an individual customer, understanding what their energy budget is. That could be electricity, natural yep. gas, uh, you know, could, right now it could be gasoline, but as you move to an electric vehicle, right? Understanding the full yep. budget picture is important. Yeah. We also need to do true long-term planning. Used to be, you know, we would plan out utilities would look one, three, five years, you know, in the transmission and distribution space. Now, maybe five years, we need to be thinking 10, 15 years. We yep. really need to be right. planning at a much more longer and a more sophisticated. I think the next thing, and part of that is we have to understand a lot of the electricity investments that you're going to be seeing in the next, you know, 20, 25 years, they're inherently lumpy. You need to build <laughs> the, the generation source. You need to build the new transmission line before that it, it's actually needed. Yeah. So understanding uh, what that looks like, you can pace and make sure that you're trying to match um, the expenditures more uh, more carefully and between different parts of the bill. So maybe we actually have to spend more on transmission in this in this time frame and maybe right. less on generation or different. Yeah. We can we can we can do phasing, especially where many of the different elements are not talking to each other. It's a lot easier in a vertically integrated province where the mm -hmm. utilities vertically integrated because they're responsible for others, but in others they're you may have someone who's a different distribution utility, transmission utility, and there are multiple generation, you know, entities who are providing it. So understanding. I think the also thing then we need to figure out what's the best way to cost effectively procure all those different things. Mm -hmm. right? From a generation, uh, it's you know, what is the best way to do competitive procurement of generation? What's the best way to allocate risk? We need to think about, uh, you know, procurement of transmission through competitive nature, not mm -hmm. that it's necessarily the, the incumbent, you, the uh, transmitter in a province or in an area that necessarily is responsible to build it. We definitely need to start leaning on non-wires alternative as opposed to wire solutions, and especially those who are that are non-wire solutions that are not owned by the utility. Mm -hmm. We need to start thinking about that. We also need to build optionality into the planning process because I think it's, I think we all know we're going to get it wrong. We don't know today what's going to happen in the, um, you know, five years, 10 years, 15. We can scenario plan, right. but things will change. And so you need to build the optionality into the plan where you can, where, you know, system planners or regulators are able to pivot when required. I think we also need behind the meter resources and demand management, right? That's obviously one of the best ways to reduce costs is if you don't have that, you don't have that capacity on the, the system to begin with and that demand. We need utilities to become more efficient. And we need to be thinking, if we're going to be spending the sums of money that we think we're going to be spending and where mm -hmm. we think the pressures are going to be, we need to start thinking about what are the must-haves, not the nice-to-haves. What that actually means, and you know, there may be disagreements about what the what, what a must-have is and what a, a nice-to-have is, 
but I definitely think we need to be thinking um, more about that. We need to give customers visibility and we need, and I think it's important that if we're going to be spending an additional amount, amount of money and having these increases in rates, usually it's got to provide a better service, mm-hmm. right? There are two sides of the coin. It's not just costs, it's better service. I mean, that part of it could be reliability, but they also is just allowing, providing a better experience for the customers. A one way where you can help justify an increase in costs, like anywhere else in the economy, right? If you want a cost increase, what am I getting more yeah. uh, for that? Yeah. So if we if we need first off to understand what the cost consequences are of these these changes out to 2050 are going to be who who is going to be able to do that um, yeah you, you, you know you noted a couple uh, the, the Canadian Climate Institute has done done some work um, the pathways uh, the, the work as well but. But this is this is not clearly not not sufficient because we don't we don't have those answers, um, and it's also going to require you know an, an ongoing sustaining effort, right? Because it'll be need to be need to be updated on on an ongoing basis. Is this something that needs to be done by the regulator? Is it something that needs to be done by government? Is it something that needs to be done by the 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 electricity providers? Is it all of the above? Is what is the method that this could actually be achieved? It could be government, it could be system operator, it could be regulator, but they're all going to need the input of each other as well as the utilities, right? Because there are lots of different pieces to this puzzle as well. It's not just those entities, but other entities, energy service providers yeah. who are providing their own services, customers about what their demand is, municipalities increasingly, indigenous communities who, who right. are both customers, but also hosts of these sorts of things. You need all of those inputs to come up uh, to be able to model that. I mean, in some sense, the government is the best source of doing that, but it could be, you know, they could often load that to some degree to, you know, an entity that is a a better sort of capability of doing the planning or the scenario modeling. um, But they'll have have to be the convener. Yeah. Yeah, okay, all right. And then uh, in terms of, I guess it's, it's a very similar answer when we talk about the need for uh, a better integrated um, integrated planning um, right across energy sources. That's something that's economy-wide and, and all stakeholders involved and, and again, would either have to be driven by government or, or at least um, at least uh, they would be have to be the convener on this for it to, to, to have any, well, also to have any credibility. I think the answer is yes government is involved what that again what that means will depend right it could be there's really the regulators role to bring those entities together for planning it really depends on what province you are what the like the structure you know the structure of the various industries are what the uh, structure of the regulatory and the the system and it may have to evolve to accommodate this yeah i mean clearly there i mean this isn't this is um um you know a very sticky a sticky problem. Otherwise, uh, you know, we would have we would have been moving forward more rapidly. But are, are you um, aware of any jurisdictions that, like, we could point to that at least they're starting to get some of this right? No. Uh, the, the truth is, there are lots of jurisdictions who are starting to think about this. Okay. Right in the U.S., there's a number of states that are starting to think about integrated planning. Some of that is again just the the regulatory authorities sort of allow them to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, even in Canada, look, I think in some sense, 
people understand that this is an issue, right? So in yeah. Ontario, the government has a, a energy transition and electrification panel that is doing that's doing some modeling to try to look at this issue sort of at a a broader, not just sort of the electricity sector or the natural gas sector, but economy wide, right? Because you know we're not electrifying for the sake of electrifying, right? Mm -hmm. You're electrifying actual industries. And you need to consider what can actually be electrified, what's the pace of those industries could be could be electrified, what can't be, and what are the alternatives. So you have to think about it in the, in the, in the broader scope there. But look, I recognize not an easy and there's not an easy solution to either. Either the general we need a modeling approach is actually very difficult, both from a technical point of view, but also mm -hmm. what scenarios, what assumptions, you know. Predicting a few years out is very hard. Predicting 50 and 20 years out is, you know, even harder, right? And on sort of integrated planning, it's hard. You're convening a number of different people in different sectors who have different views, different, um, you know, different time horizons, right. different regulatory structures that may be different. And putting it all together is obviously um, incredibly hard. Yeah. And if we're if we're going to need to be flexible enough, um, and uh, um, um, you know recognize that optionality is is going to be required, that means there will be potentially some dead ends in the future. There may be stranded assets as a result of that. That that makes it very complicated for the regulator in, in terms of in terms of. Yeah, that's a level. That's a level of risk that regulators uh, probably are not particularly comfortable with. Yes, but the way I look at it is actually you're trying to limit those risks, right? By creating right. optionality, you're limiting that you go down. Uh, going too far down. You go down where well, you actually are stranding the assets or a okay. significant amount of assets because of that. Here is you're just building a plan and you're building the ability to make changes or to change time uh, time horizons as things actually unfold. Look we know they will unfold differently than what you will predict. Some of them will be, look, some things will be right on, some will be wildly off. And you just need to, you need to both plan for the long-term, but also expect that, um, you know, even the medium and long-term are actually gonna look, probably look different, okay. but the goal is the same. Okay, so optionality limits, potentially limits um, the, the stranding of assets. For sure, I mean, just think about it, um, you know, in the most basic sense, right? We're, you know, if you're assuming high uptake of, of EVs, yeah, right? The question is, okay, if you take a look at the people who live down your street, can the distribution system facilitate or can, can you integrate that many EVs onto their, onto your, uh, onto the street? Maybe, maybe not. But technology may change where you're now using bi-directional and so you're actually, it actually is a benefit all these sorts of things. And that's just you know, the most simplistic yeah. uh, example of that. But just think about large, but sort of new generation sources, where they would play out, what this would look like, what the expectation between uh, behind the meter and in front of the meter, all those sorts of things would really impact the type of large build outs that we, we will need and where we may need them. Yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd um... Actually, we both, I think, had mentioned the Canadian Climate Institute and some of their work previously. Uh, one of the things that that they've said is is they've projected again on this question of, you know, affordability for customers. Uh, they've projected uh, in in some of their work that that um, they expect the the um, the the total energy uh, bill to the to the end customer to be the same or in some jurisdictions lower uh, out out to twenty fifty. 
I, I, I don't know how you feel about that. I'm, I'm still scratching my head on it, given you know what we've talked about in terms of the massive investment that's going to be required. On the one hand, on the other hand, I mean, I've just recently moved over to a, an electric vehicle, and suddenly I'm, you know, spending twelve dollars a week instead of ninety um, on, on fuel. But what, what was your initial take on on those kinds of projections um, uh, about uh, about the total energy package on on customers? I, I'm a professional skeptic, so I was clearly skeptical <laughs> of that. But you know, even if you take a look at that report, I mean. It, it's on average, right? You know, if you take a look, right. there's there's a distributional effect within each province and how that will look. And there may be quite substantial changes depending on where you are. You know, you take your example of an electric vehicle and you're reducing your cost. Electric vehicles, as we build out charging stations, that may be, you know, maybe, and the costs come down, that may be more attainable for many people. But when you talk about sort of other broader changes that would need to happen electric electrifying economy, there are some who just won't be able to make those changes because of costs, you know, businesses who won't be able to make some of those changes just because, you know, you actually need the input fuels, you know, yeah. electricity doesn't work for them. You know, there's a whole host of other, you know, if we talk about large investments in building retrofits and some of that, maybe very easy for some, maybe very hard for others um, to be able to do that. And so, uh, you know, I think we all have to be careful about that. And I also think the truth is, you know, one of the big problems is we don't really, you know, historically we've seen as time goes on, prices for different things are going to drop, right? As yeah. we get scale. It's unclear how that plays out in the future where there will be a supply constraint for some of these, for, uh, for, for critical minerals, right. for labor, all those sorts of things where you can't necessarily say that the sort of normal trajectory of pricing uh, for those inputs um, will be as we've seen in the past. Yeah. Yeah, no. I've, I mean, I've, I've been hearing uh, um, significant concerns from from uh, the, the the sector, from uh, from members, and, and also from others about supply chain and about about labor today. And then, yeah, when one projects into the future, the the challenges are not going to go away. That's for sure. So overall, um, how would you characterize how we're doing in terms of? Our, our rate regulation um, and and the work that you do, uh, are are we are we actually doing fairly well, uh, or you know is there is there a lot that can be done to improve uh, our just our overall approach to to how we uh, regulate rates um, in Ontario and in Canada? Well, it depends what day it is. <laughs> <laughs> I well, think okay. the truth on, is, on any given on any given uh, Thursday, it's Thursday today. On any given Thursday, uh, overall, how 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 are we doing? You know, I think okay. Right. You know, I would say we're doing okay. Well, first of all, it depends where you are across uh, across the country. Okay. Uh, you know, it depends where you are across the country and what the situation is. So I can't speak for everywhere across the country. There are different regulators with different resources, and their ability to do different things right may differ. I would say in Ontario, we're pretty lucky where we have a, you know, a, a traditional transmission and distribution regulator, the Ontario Energy Board, that is relatively well-resourced comparatively, yeah. and is, uh, I would say, forward-looking in some of the electrification and energy transition challenges that everyone's facing. Yeah. And also with respect to conservation and demand-side management and resource integrated resource planning on the natural gas side. But, you know, 
it's always it's always challenging in an area of increasing costs. Yeah. Uh, you know, governments are like are always putting pressure on agencies to reduce their costs and be more efficient. And that can't be blamed in some broad sense. But, you know, sometimes we need to make sure that we're not being, um, you know, penny wise, pound foolish mm -hmm. on some of these issues. Mm -hmm. Also, it depends, uh, you know, that it's very easy to say on the, the transmission distribution. One of the issues that, you know, in some jurisdictions, some jurisdictions face and others don't is that, you know, the generation side is largely not unregulated, but it's essentially there's no uh, third party oversight. Okay. So in Ontario, outside of Ontario gen uh, power generation, which is about 30% of the generation in Ontario, um, the remainder 70%. Uh, the IEF cylinder, our system operator, also acts as a procurement procurement authority, essentially plans and procures, and there's no oversight of it. Not to say that they're making necessarily bad decisions or anything like that, but I think having uh, oversight over those sort of processes, I think would cre create greater, would force upon entities to be you know, to make sure they've got their, their uh, pencil sharpened, it creates a better discipline and it provides, I'd say, better in, uh, and a broader array of stakeholder input um, to do that. Right. Okay. Listen, Mark, the, the last question I ask everybody who joins the podcast is uh, is for a book recommendation and and um, and for a book that will add to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. So uh, what book should we be adding to our uh, to our reading list, Mark? Well, so I thought about this before I came on, and since it's an Electricity Canada podcast, I thought you have a book about electricity. Okay. And the book I have, and it's it's actually about two decades old, but I think it's great. It's Empire of Light um, by uh, Empire of Light, Edison, Tesla, Westinghouse, and, and the race to electrify the world. And it's really a fascinating history of both the personal, but also the business history of obviously these three titans of the early uh, early days of the electricity uh, the electricity sector that was trying to build an electricity system that uh, somewhat resembles what we would recommend. That's a that's a terrific recommendation to add to our reading list. So we'll put the we'll put the link to that uh, both on the on the show page uh, and uh, we'll include it on our Flux Capacitor Book Club. That's awesome. Thank you very much for that, Mark. And thanks for taking the time to to jump on the podcast. Really appreciate the the chance to to catch up instead of a thirty second uh, conversation in a hallway at a conference or or at an event. It was great to actually have a more uh, a more in depth conversation with you. No problem. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future episodes. Please take the time to rate the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. And let me know what you think of the Flux Capacitor. You can find me on Twitter as at Brad Bradley. The website for this pod is thefluxcapacitor.ca, and it includes links for this episode on the show page, this being episode 79. And while you're there, check out the book club page, which provides info and links to the books which have been recommended by guests on the Flux Capacitor, including Mark's recommendation, Empires of Light, Edison, Tesla, Westinghouse, and the Race to Electrify the World. And let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca. Mm -hmm.